This episode of Something Positive for Positive People is to celebrate the life of Nadia Joanna Wortham, a class of 2019 Central Visual and Performing Arts High School graduate. She was part of the Show Me Costa Rica project, and her closest friends call her beautiful, selfless, and the person who brightened the room with her smile. May the beauty and selflessness of her spirit continue to thrive as her presence now extends beyond the limitations of the human body. You are loved, Nadia Joanna Wortham. You are loved. Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brand. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides resources for stigmatized communities, helping them navigate their healing processes. Today, I'm here with Christine Frampus. Her letters at the end of her degrees are H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P-Q-R-S. I'm, I'm going to have to let you do that because I just can't. Yeah, um, my letters are M-E-D-L-P-C-N-C-C. RPT. So are those four different things? Yes. What are these four things? So, I mean, so that like I'm not downplaying your education. Uh, I have my master's in education. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I am a nationally certified counselor. I'm a registered play therapist, and I also have my master's in social work. Got it. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to talk about today is something that goes back to the very beginning of what Something Positive for Positive People began as, which was a suicide prevention resource. Over the last three years, we've branched out into not only sex education, STD prevention, or risk reduction, risk management, whatever it is that you want to call it, but we've more so been touching on stigma, period, and that includes mental health stigma, it includes serving impoverished communities. So today we're taking it back to the beginning, we're addressing suicide and trauma, and I brought on someone who has the credentials to discuss it in the level of detail that I'm hoping to be able to communicate this to people who may not quite understand it. So for me, the word trauma itself has been something fairly new to me. I thought that I had an understanding of what trauma was until I began reading it and getting in the more context of it and self-educating in adulthood beyond my college level degree. And it's still so new to me that I'm wanting to do more backtracking so that I can articulate it to the people who are affected by it but may not know they're affected by it or have any way of understanding it. That's what Christine's here for, and I'm hoping to be able to really make this a useful resource for anyone who maybe needs this. Can we please begin with the definition of trauma? Trauma is going to be any experience that is hard for people to process. So it can be something like sexual abuse, physical abuse. It can be witnessing a violent act, whether it's gun violence, domestic violence, a car accident. People are going to come back from war having been traumatized. People are going to be in gangs having been traumatized. People can experience trauma within their own household. Trauma is going to look different for every single person based on their coping skills as well as their mental health and their well-being. Witnessing a particular event can be traumatic and our focus today is on suicide specifically. So can we first define what suicide is? Suicide is going to be the act of taking your own life. Right. And now that we have these working terms here of what trauma is and what suicide is, so having the experience of a loved one or someone taking their own life is in fact a traumatic experience. Yes, absolutely. And the term we actually use is survivor of suicide. So a survivor of suicide is going to be someone who has 
had someone they love complete suicide or die by suicide. Let's talk about different ways that a survivor of suicide can be affected. Uh, yeah, so now we're gonna step into the grief world, right? So grief is going to be the process of grieving, whether it's grieving socially, whether it's grieving emotionally, whether it's grieving cognitively or spiritually, there are all these different ways in which we grieve. So suicide is gonna be all of those things like any other, like any other death, um, whether it may be cancer or heart attack or car accident. But the thing that differentiates suicide is gonna be the stigma associated with it. There's still such a stigma that revolves around talking about suicide and admitting to other people that someone in your family has died by suicide. That's a hard thing for people to verbalize. So a lot of suicide survivors are gonna talk about regret, they're gonna talk about guilt, they're gonna talk about shame, they're gonna talk about all these things that they think they should have done to prevent this from happening. Can we get a working definition of grief as we move forward so we know what we're what, where we're starting with the term, so we're all on the same page. Yep, grief is going to be that process, whether it's socially, spiritually, emotionally, processing the, the loss. This process, as you mentioned, can look a number of different ways. Grieving the loss of someone can look like sadness or depression or a different type of behavior that's out of the norm. Is it fair to say that that's like what a symptom of grief could be? Yeah, absolutely. With grief, you're going to experience all sorts of different feelings, right? There's going to be sadness, going to be anger, going to be regret. There's going to be relief if it was a cancer person who like, yeah, it's, they're gone, but they're not, they're not suffering anymore. So you might feel relieved that they're not suffering. Um, you're going to be confused. You're going to be heartbroken. You're going to be any number of feelings and they might not happen just one at a time. They're going to happen overlapping. Uh, you're going to see physical symptoms, maybe like stomach aches, headaches, uh, appetite changes, changes in sleep, changes in your social circle, depending on who dies, depending on who you hang out with. If your grandma dies and she's the matriarch of the family, maybe that means that holidays look different. Uh, so there's going to be an, any number of different reactions. None of them are right or wrong. It's just part of the process of dealing with a the loss. These are all just natural processes of grief. Can you tell me what it looks like when a person may not be grieving? Yeah, so people are gonna grieve in their own way. So I'm, I'm hesitant to say people aren't grieving just because grief looks so different for everyone. I was at a conference this morning about grief and trauma actually and the keynote speaker in the morning had everyone start out by drawing a cat. She gave them one minute. After the minute she had people say like, what do all these cats have? They have ears, they have paws, they have little noses. How are they different? Some are standing, some are big, some are small. So with grief, everyone experiences it, but it looks different for every person. Oh. So I'm not gonna sit here and say that someone who just lost their cousin isn't grieving because they're not crying or because they're not acting a certain way. They might just internalize their grief in a different way than I do. So grief is gonna be something experienced by every human across their lifetime but it's gonna look also different for every human across their lifetime. Are there different levels of grief, so to speak? And I use that for lack of a better term. If I lose a pet, if I lose a relative, if I lose a community member, if a celebrity passes away. You're gonna feel it in different sizes. I went to a training recently where they said that the size of your grief is equivalent to the size of your relationship. So, which like just, was so eye-opening to me, even though I've been doing this for 10 years, right? Like, 
yeah, you might grieve a pet, but if that relationship was small, you're not going to grieve it in a big way. But if you lose your mom, that's a huge relationship for some people. So you're going to grieve that in a much bigger way. So the size of your grief is relative to the size of the relationship you had with that person. Now, when we talk about the relationship, it doesn't matter how close you might have been or how distant you might have been. We're talking about the fact that there was a relationship, whether positive or negative, because there are people who can grieve the death of their abuser, for instance. That's no better or worse than someone having lost a significant other that they'd been with for more than half their lives. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard sometimes when people want to minimize a loss for themselves. So like I do grief groups in the community as well as at school. And so you might have someone who's lost a spouse in the group and someone who's lost a child and someone who's lost a cousin. Oftentimes what happens is that person that has lost their cousin minimizes their own loss because they haven't lost their spouse or their child. But the reality is that you still have a relationship with this person. It might be the most significant loss you've ever experienced. It doesn't mean you should minimize your grief because of someone else's. Thinking back to like when Kobe died, right? Kobe died very suddenly, not that long ago. I have two roommates. It happened over the weekend. They're both teachers. They said, ah, I bet you no one talks about this at school tomorrow. And I was like, ah, I bet you they do talk about it at school tomorrow. They came home and yeah, kids had talked about it, not because they knew Kobe, but because he was such this figure in society and in basketball and in sports that they felt that even though they didn't have a personal relationship with him. Given the definitions now we have of trauma, grief, suicide, and these being the focal points here, what happens if the grieving is taking place and it's not very distant and it's not just in the family, but if it's in a community, like a small knit community of a geography. So let's say a school setting, a student commits suicide and now we're not just talking about the friends and family of this person. We're also talking about secondary, tertiary effects. So it's not just the immediate surroundings of the person who's no longer with us, but it's also the school system and then the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so before I jump into that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna correct you in one way. So uh, when it comes to talking about suicide, you use the phrase committed suicide, which in the grief community we're trying to get away from. Committed is often a time a word used for committed a crime, committed a murder, committed a sexual assault, it's very often negatively associated with things that follow it. So instead of using committed, we're trying to shift towards died by suicide. Uh, Because suicide is not a crime, suicide is oftentimes the result of unresolved mental health issues and depression or some other layer of mental health, right? So I'm going to move forward, and I'd love for you to do to use the phrase died by suicide as opposed to committed. It helps remove the stigma just a little bit more every time we change our language around it. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah, of course. I'll do it. I mean, I can do, I can do it all the time. <laughs> I'll um, away. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking at the death within a school community, that's going to be something, frankly, that... I wish upon no educator or student ever in, a, in that community. To give a little bit of background here, I used to be a school counselor at a high school. While I was there, I didn't have a student die by suicide, but I did attend, I think, five funerals in my three years there. And then I'm a school counselor now in elementary school, and we had a student pass away earlier this school year. So I'm, I'm very much familiar with how loss impacts school communities. 
and how loss impacts just the daily function of what the school looks like. So you're going to want to have, frankly, like additional supports at school in terms of are there extra counselors that can come in to provide additional support? Are there additional mental health services that can be brought in from the community? Are there ways to then honor that person and their memory like within the school system or within the building? So whether it's doing something with their desk or their locker or any of those things. I think the biggest thing, though, is kids need a space to be able to talk about it. I presented at this conference this morning and one of the biggest things that adults feel is that if I talk about this loss, I'm gonna make that kid sad. When the reality is that kid's gonna be sad no matter what. That kid, whether they lost a best friend or a classmate, is gonna think about it. They're gonna notice that kid not sitting in class. They're gonna notice that kid not riding the bus. They're gonna be sad whether we're talking about it or not. So giving kids the space to just talk about it is something that adults rarely do because they don't want to make them uncomfortable. But you're not making that kid uncomfortable. You're just helping them process this event. You're giving them space to talk about it, which is honestly the most important things for kids to be able to feel like they can do when they experience a loss like that. For myself, having grown up in the St. Louis public school system, I didn't know that this was something to talk about. To me, this was just normal. As we talk more about trauma, we learned that it's something that has been sort of normalized in particular communities. So how do kids know that this is something they're supposed to talk about? How are they going to know how to articulate what's happening inside them if they don't have a foundation similar to this or any kind of language that allows for them to express it. Unfortunately, that is a reality for some of our communities, right? Kids aren't going to know that it's okay to talk about these things and deal with these things if adults aren't modeling that for them. It has to start with the adults in that. It has to start with teachers, counselors, social workers, bus drivers, cafeteria staff, parents, aunts, uncles. It has to be us showing them that it's okay because otherwise we're going to raise this entire generation of kids not knowing that they can talk about these things. It's our responsibility as adults, and I feel this very strongly as a school counselor, to give kids that space to do that because kids, especially so often the younger kids, they'll model after us, right? So some parents will come into group and they'll say, I don't want to cry in front of my kid because then they'll think it's their fault or then they'll start crying. It's okay to cry if someone dies, right? It's okay to be sad about that loss. Kids aren't gonna be able to fully process these things unless we're giving them the space to do it and giving them permission to do it. And they get that permission either from us verbally giving it to them or by us modeling what that looks like to process things. So we're talking about more of a trauma-informed approach to helping students processing grief. Yeah, look at you and your buzzwords. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've been to some workshops myself, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, but we're looking at, yeah, that's the biggest thing you can do is just modeling it for them. And if you don't think you have the training or the language for it, that's okay. Just saying, just saying to them, if you want to talk about this, I'm here to listen. You don't have to say anything to them. Giving them a chance to just talk and someone listening to them is something that our kids don't always have. It seems like it's really a uh, safety can be an issue. If I'm taught at home that it's not okay to express emotions or talk through things that we, quote, just don't talk about or we're not going to talk about, what are some ways that we can make it safe for children who may have this sort of inner conflict at home of I'm not supposed to talk about it to at school where it's like, hey, it's okay to talk about it. How do we create this space for them? 
yeah, I think that's twofold. So I work at a charter school in St. Louis City, so I have kids all the time like that that come and say, oh, my mom told me not to talk about it, my dad told me not to talk about it. From my point of view, I just say, that's okay. If you don't want to, you don't have to, but if you change your mind, I'm here for you. So just saying that, and then also, if there comes to some point where kids are really externalizing behaviors and experiences that I don't necessarily know about, but I know they've had, then it's a conversation of, I'm calling your parent and saying, hey, I don't know what's going on. I do know that they are super emotional at lunchtime. I do know that they are super emotional before they have to go home. I do know that they are talking back to kids and not having good peer relationships. So it's a conversation with the parents of, I see all these things happening. This isn't how it used to be. Something happened. I'd love to be able to support you and support your kid in helping them work through this. Talking about reaching out to the parents and asking for their involvement. I almost feel like sometimes there's a tug of war between a young person as a student in a school system and a young person as the child in the household, mm -hmm. right? So in the school system, there's one way of being, a one way of teaching, this structure. And then when you go home, there's a completely different structure. So now these two structures have to communicate either through the student slash child or directly parent to teacher. And I almost feel like oftentimes when we look at our at-risk communities mm -hmm. where parents may be significantly younger, parents may be at work, all the time and may not have connection with their children or may not be able to connect with staff in a way that they can understand and really be supportive or helpful. Bridging this gap of communication, like what does it look like when the teachers, the school system reaches out to the parent or caregiver? It depends, right? You know, at a charter school in St. Louis City, we do have a lot of parents that work a lot. We do have young parents. We do have parents that are hard to get a hold of. But it's a matter of just consistently showing that we love their kid. I've never had a parent be mad at me for reaching out because I'm trying to support their kid. And even those parents that work a lot, that are young, that have, have their own trauma and grief experiences, there is one parent in eight years I can think of that has told me she didn't want counseling for her kids. And was there a reason behind that? Nope, she didn't give me a reason. Mm -mm, didn't give me a reason. And that's okay. That's like your own personal choice for your kid, right? But... That's one family out of hundreds that I've worked with over the last decade. I think this is being consistent with it. And I think when kids see you trying to support them at school and when kids can feel that you care about them, kids are going to be more open to their parents talking to you and encouraging their parents to call you back or getting a hold of them. They're going to be just more receptive all around as a family unit. I can also say that having been at the school I'm at currently now for the last five years. We had a conversation recently because it feels like a lot of our families are going through a lot of stuff right now. They're having a hard time with certain aspects of things. And we were talking about, are things worse in the community or do we just know more because they're sharing more because we've been around them for so long? And I think it's kind of both, right? I think that there has been an uptick in gun violence, particular in St. Louis City when it comes to gang violence in families. But I also think that families, because they've known us for so long and they're comfortable with us, they tell us more. And so at the bottom of all that is what kind of relationship do you have with 
your families if you're at a school? What kind of relationship do families have with you? And do they feel like it's a safe space? Because if they feel like it's a safe space, I don't care if you work 70 hours a week, you're going to reach out to that school. You mentioned that families are having more of their own stuff going on and maybe now they're just opening up to us more about things that have been going on where it seems like while we're teaching the students, we almost have to educate the parents as well. Yeah, and that's just, that's a much harder thing to be able to do, right? Because I can't necessarily get every parent in the building that I want to provide resources to. So I can send home packets of stuff or text them phone numbers or certain things, but providing parent education, Courtney, honestly, is something that I have struggled to be able to do consistently because it feels, I don't know the word for it, it's its hard. Because when families do work a lot or maybe they don't have transportation to get to school, helping parents like bridge the gap with maybe it's getting their GED or maybe it's getting a new job or going and building a resume, those are things that just take so much more in terms of community resources that are hard to, can be hard to connect people with. Well, it sounds like the resources are there. They just may not be as accessible to the families, the parents, the caregivers. Yeah. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, it's also a matter of... So I know UMSL has like some parenting classes, but UMSL's like pretty far north if you live on the south side. And if you've got three little kids at home and you need to get them up there, but you're on the bus, that's why would I do that to spend my six hours a night doing that on, once a week. That just doesn't feel reasonable. So how can we then make resources just more accessible is a big thing for parents. You mentioned like sending things home with mm -hmm. the children. And I can remember in my experience bringing things home to my caregiver. Maybe my mom wasn't at home and I'd have to have my grandfather sign something. Mm -hmm. and he'd be like, well, what's this? How was school today? He wouldn't have his glasses on, so he just know he's looking at a signature <laughs> line and uh -huh. he's trusting me to tell him what's on this sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. I don't understand grief, but the way that I understand it now, maybe I would have been in my own grieving process after having lost a classmate, a mm -hmm. teammate, if I was playing sports or mm -hmm. someone uh, in the community, someone that I may not have even known or been close to, but I see how other people are affected by mm -hmm. it and that affects me. Mm -hmm. So I'm bringing home this, you know, two, three page sheet of paper. My granddad's watching Wild Wild Westerns or whatever, and he mm -hmm. just looks down, signs off, and then mm -hmm. I go on about my business. I throw it in my book bag. I go play video games mm -hmm. and there's no connection about me having experienced the trauma of a loss or me being in a grieving process and business in the household is functioning as usual, mm -hmm. but there's no understanding that maybe I'm not functioning the same, so you can't have the same expectations of me. For any of the students who may be navigating the challenge of at school, you know, being informed that it's okay for you to grieve and this is what you're going through to go home and like have to be in a space where it may not even be safe for you to articulate it. Because mm -hmm. think about, yeah. I think back to not being able to talk back. If I'm trying to inform, I'm seen as talking down to the authority in the household. Mm -hmm. So I can't even begin to attempt to articulate my words without getting my lips smacked off, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. as an example. Yeah. A safe thing for that, I don't know if it would be a good idea to have the parents, hey, you have to listen to this audio at some point in time because we talk about the accessibility issue mm -hmm. if someone's on the commute. I mean, if the kids have smartphones with internet, parents have smartphones yep. with internet at the very minimum, and maybe that may not be the case, but this is one vehicle of delivering the information and 
it's something that can be utilized. So even with this conversation that we're having, I think there were a few things that you said here that I've been like, whoa, like my head exploded on the mm -hmm. inside. It's also just a, a constant challenge too of, so I think back, we this year had a, a kindergartner die and we sent home a letter. I sat and talked with the class about what it meant. We did a social media post, but still, how do you then support those same kids that are experiencing this loss in their community who might be in third or fourth grade, didn't know this kid, but are seeing maybe their friends react or maybe they had a sibling in that classroom and so they're reacting strongly because of just the loss in general, not the relationship of the loss. What we did is she died on a Monday. So Tuesday, all of the other social workers and counselors from the region were, were on campus with me at my school and they were helping those kids process that. And then every kid that came through the crisis, wherever you want to call it, had came in for like crisis counseling or whatever, I called their parent that night because I didn't want to risk sending this letter home and not, like you said, like not getting there or giving, being given to someone else. So I made, a, I made an effort to call every single kid that came through here, their parent, and say, hey, this kid like had this reaction to when we told them about this situation. We talked them through it today. Like We're going to keep our eye on them for the rest of the week. But I just want you to know as a parent so you can have that conversation too. So it's also just part of it's on the schools, you know, to, to bridge the gap when kids are really struggling with something. I'd be jumping around here a little bit, but for the students, we are talking about grief as a whole and then we touch on it in certain aspects. But in the instance of a suicide, you mentioned earlier that survivor of suicide, this person who who's grieving in a different way, I think that their grieving may come from a sense of, I could have done something different. Mm -hmm. I should have been able to help them. Mm -hmm. I should have known. I should have seen this coming. What do we say to that person? Because I feel like that person may be hit pretty intensely. Yeah, and that's a, that is a very real conversation I've had with lots of people. For context, I'm a survivor of suicide. My uncle died by suicide in 2009. I was home for Easter break. I was a senior in college. So it was a Saturday night. He called. I was with my mom in the basement. It was her brother. So I talked to him and I was like, he's like, oh, I talked to your mom. Put mom on the phone. She's like, hey, the kids are home for Easter. Can I call you back tomorrow? He's like, yeah, 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 that's fine. The next morning, we get a call that he'd completed suicide. And so that stinks, right? And my mom had all this guilt and all this shame and all this regret with how she handled that phone call because not even 12 hours later, he had died. And so when it comes to that, if someone is truly mentally ill and has depression to such a severity that they want to end their life, there isn't a whole lot we can do about it. If they are convinced that this is the only way out, that this is the only solution, that this is the only thing they can do, we can talk to them until we're blue in the face, but we can't, we can't save everyone. And that is a hard thing to sit with, especially as a therapist. It's a harder thing to sit with as someone whose parent has experienced those same feelings, right? But she could have said anything she wanted on the phone that night, but it wasn't gonna change the fact that my uncle had been severely depressed for years. It wasn't gonna change the fact that he'd attempted suicide before. It wasn't gonna change the fact that he was gonna try it again. So as hard as that is sometimes, 
there are sometimes we just can't do things. There are other times, obviously, when people are making a more rash decision to attempt suicide, where they're deciding and two minutes later they have a gun in their hand. But if someone truly wants to die, there's, there's not a whole lot someone else can do to stop them, which is unfortunate. In this case, your uncle was depressed. Mm -hmm. Are there other mental health things that we can look out for in people who may be contemplating suicide? It's hard to say, right? So some of the things that they train you to look at in school is what's the plan? Do they have a plan? Is it a feasible plan? Is it a realistic plan? Do they have the means to access this plan? Are they doing things like not making plans for the future? Are they giving away possessions? Those are like really, really significant red flags to suicide. But then there are people who don't do those things and still die by suicide, you know? So it's, it's one of those things where like, yeah, check on, check on your friends, check on your loved ones. Don't just check in on them when they have a hard day, check in on them when things are good, you know? It's one of those things where utilize those relationships you have with people. Reach out if something happens to them, you know, let them know you're there for them. You can do those kinds of things. People, it's just hard, right? Like there are, I mean, depression is a huge one. Bipolar because of the nature of how manic and depression works with bipolar and the swings can be another one. Yeah, so there are definitely like mental illness things to watch out for and like reach out to your friends regardless if they have mental health issues because there are a number of people who will be drunk and die by suicide, not because they were depressed, but because that their, their decision-making was impacted. So my biggest thing is reach out to people, you know, be available to people, just tell people you love them, right? Like just be there for your, be there for your people. With the world being as massive as it is in terms of human population, naturally everything is on an increase. So we can say that deaths by suicide have mm -hmm. likely gone up over the years. Are there other environmental factors or factors that we can look at that play some sort of a role there? Maybe social media or the accessibility of information or seeing that suicide and depression have become such normalized topics of discussion in the media or even music, for instance. Like I've listened to some music by some current artists who might be popular uh, in hip hop, for instance, and they talk about taking antidepressants, overdosing mm -hmm. on drugs and mood altering substances and suicide ideation because kids are impressionable. Yeah, absolutely they are. Are they now seeing these as options of coping with the struggle? I think as with everything else, the way we handle social media and treat social media, everything is just that much accessible to us and so much more in our face. And I don't know the statistics off the top of my head. I don't know if the rates are higher or lower than they were 25 years ago. I've seen things on social media consistently that mm -hmm. suggest suicide rates being on the rise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Death so, by suicide. Yeah, I think part of that is probably access to without like the lethal aspect of it. I mean, if you look at male versus female suicide rates, the male rate is much higher because they're more likely to use a lethal, like a more dangerous means. They're more likely to die by gunshot. Whereas females might be more likely to try to overdose on pills, which is a more treatable way if you're found in, in time. So I think it's partially going to be because people have access to 
more lethal weapons and more lethal means of doing it. I do think social media is just a really, really slippery slope, especially when you think about, we even have third graders making TikTok videos, right? Like I was in third grade, I didn't even have a cell phone. So I think access to social media and kids being able to just see all sorts of not age appropriate things is a huge impact on just the mental health of our youth because you know, they see all these people doing themselves up this way or looking this way or the comment sections of any celebrity's Instagram posts, right? So those are gonna negatively impact our kids because that's the time when they form their self-esteem and their self-worth and figure out who they're trying to become as they get older and what they wanna value and who they wanna be and how they wanna respect others and who they wanna be friends with. And social media is impacting all of those things, which, I don't know the exact correlation between that and suicide rates, but there's just the mental health of our youth is at risk because of some of those things. And not saying every youth is gonna have mental health things going on, but I think also because of social media, we're just more aware and those things are more to the forefront. I think there are important conversations happening via social media and because of those platforms. I also think it is risky for some of our more impressionable youth. As adults, who may want to support and serve our youth, there may be some barriers from allowing us to really connect with them in the way that we would like to in order to offer the support. Have you seen any sort of peer-led support groups, let's say at the high school level, maybe led by students where students can come in and get some sort of support from one another or do any type of venting if they have things that they're struggling with, feeling comfortable to share with their peers? And in this group, maybe the moderators or the panelists or the leaders of the organization are receiving some sort of uh, support from adults. So maybe a handful of students want to put something together like this to provide support to whoever needs to come in mm -hmm. after school and just needs to talk mm -hmm. or get support and maybe create sort of like a uh, protocol for if there's anything that should definitely be investigated by adults. So we're talking maybe uh, sexual abuse or domestic violence in relationships or anything. I don't know what else would be over the top or anyone's talking about. I'm thinking about coming in and shooting up the school. If we get to um, a place of having these peer support groups, do you think that that's something that may help with our accessibility issues of needing more resources and counselors at the school for support? Ooh, loaded question there, Courtney. Um, so I can't necessarily say at an elementary school level right now, when I was at the high school level, we did have a boys group that ran during school hours that was facilitated by an outside agency. I can't speak to what high schools are doing now in terms of across the greater St. Louis area. In terms of peers, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that one. I think that there are probably ways that that could be really, really important and well utilized across schools, but I, I don't you were know. Say dangerous. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, like, oh. um, I mean, there are, as with anything, right? Like mm -hmm. there are. I would be hesitant to let peers start a group like that. I would want to have someone like facilitate and moderate, and then like wean themselves back off of it because you want to be able to set certain norms for those groups and certain boundaries for them because there also are potential things that come up in that that they aren't equipped to handle and you need to have someone 
that's going to be responsible to do that. College student internships. <laughs> that's the closest thing I get. If they're in psych, <laughs> if they're in any sort of um, psychology or something, we can offer internships. Yeah, I mean, heck, uh, if you want to start it, I'll, I'll bring you on in my school. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things where, especially in education now, sometimes mental health needs just aren't met all the times because of testing or because of all these other things that are happening within the schools. So I think peer support would be great. I don't know that there's a model out there that exists for that. That I, I'm At least that I'm not aware of. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but okay. that I'm aware of. As far as bridging the gap of communications, we can just drive this home. Um, I think that's the big thing. Like We don't know that we're affected by things that we don't know we're affected by. And so we talk about trauma itself and the normalization of trauma and if it's something that has been generational if we're going through the same things that our parents went through to them then it's normal so we're at an age now where we have access to more information we have more support resources we have language we have teachers who are being more supportive to students and navigating the things that they may be going through that the students themselves haven't been able to articulate we're at a place where this stuff is available and now it's a matter of communicating it. We're starting with the kids who are directly affected by the things that we now have language with, like you said, may have already been there. And now people are just becoming more comfortable with talking about the fact that these things are there. Now it's a matter of helping get the parents, the caretakers on the same page with understanding what the children are learning because as adults, we should be able to interpret the information a little bit better and in a more mature way in order to support anyone who may be grieving, uh, who may have experienced the secondary effects of a traumatic experience, such as a classmate, schoolmate, friend, relative who died by suicide. I think on top of that, right, the biggest thing we can do for the kids that we work with, whether we're school counselors, whether we're teachers, whether we're an aunt or uncle, whether we're a parent, is giving them kids the space to talk about it. Because that, at the end of the day, is what kids want. I think about my own losses and how those have impacted me. And I don't want to not talk about those people because they're still important to me and they're still a part of how I developed and how I'm shaped and like why I believe certain things and forgetting them doesn't make me feel better. You know, sometimes talking about them is hard, but that's okay because they're a part of me, right? And so giving people the space to talk about their people, their experiences is one of the most powerful things we can do for each other. One thing that we didn't get to touch on that maybe we can close out with here is uh, grieving. We talked about grieving external relationships, but is there a form of grief where we are grieving the loss of our identity in association to someone or something that we may have lost? Yeah, so grief isn't just related to death. So grief can be the process of of going through the process of dealing with any number of things. It can be identity it can be a parent that's incarcerated it can be a divorce it can be infertility it can be moving or changing jobs right so 
the idea that grief is just with death isn't really, shouldn't really be the thing. We can grieve any number of things. Grief is just the process of doing it. And it's a hard process, right? It's, and some days it's a lot harder than others and you might take five steps forward and three steps back and feel like you're not getting anywhere, but the only way to, to get through some of these traumatic events, these hard things that happen to us as humans, is to grieve them. Thank you, Chris Kane. Is there anything else you want to leave us with before I let you go? Just be there for each other, you know? Just reach out to people and support each other and talk and build relationships and get to know each other. But that's all we can really do sometimes to be good humans. So I guess be a good human, <laughs> if I have to say something. As digitally connected as we are, we cannot neglect the human connection aspect. So connect, connect with people. In Check person. In, Do in person. person. Connect with call. people. Call, make a in phone person. call. Yeah, that's a, that's another podcast episode. Don't, <laughs> don't send that text. Dial, <laughs> hit, the, hit the dial button. <laughs> All right. How can people find you? Um, how can people find me? Well, do you want people to find you? I didn't even ask you that. Right? No, you didn't. Um, my my Instagram is private. Oh. Um, <laughs> because of just the, the nature there of my work. absolutely no reason for people to get in contact with you then. I will um, cut if that you're, out. If you're looking for therapy, I'm at Terrace House. I do grief therapy, but I also do other stuff. We also have a number of other great therapists there. So if you're looking for a new therapist or to start therapy... You can find Terrace House uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, or on the internet. Sounds like I just picked up a new sponsor, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive. Are you serious? We made it the entire episode without that. Okay, I'm going to let the ambulance roll by. Hey, someone's experiencing out. a trauma right now, and so right. we're going to have to just let them help. they got to process their that's, trauma. That's Yeah, you're right. Now i got to leave that in there. This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to this podcast. As I mentioned, we're expanding into the space of giving people who are experiencing any type of stigma or trauma the tools to navigate their own healing process. And I want to thank Christine for joining us, especially on such short notice, to get this podcast episode in because we're in a time now where there are so many things going on at the macro level that we're completely overlooking or uh, just being distracted from the things that are happening on the micro level. So it's important for us to continue to just connect with people as humans. And I know we're supposed to be isolating from one another. And I want to make sure that we have this time to really do what we can to connect. Connect ourselves, connect to loved ones, and use the tools that we have in order to remain connected with those that we may not be able to be in immediate proximity with. Till next time, stay positive.